You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Okay, well, this morning we're looking at two questions, as I said, the forbidden fruit and the public person. I didn't have any other way of summarizing that. But the first question is 15, and it asks this. What was the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created? And the answer given is the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created was their eating the forbidden fruit. Fairly straightforward. Now, of course, as we know, when God created Adam and Eve, they created, he created them in an estate of innocence, without guilt, and blessedness. No corruption, no misery. So Solomon reflects upon this and he says, See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And that word upright is the operative word. They were perfectly holy. They were completely righteous. They were without any taint of corruption. Uh, It was a blessed condition. And they were innocent. And again, this gets back to the whole question of how can people that are made like this fall into sin? But they were mutable. That is the important point. So however it happened, they were able to be changed. Adam's fall was voluntary. He did it with eyes wide open. He had the liberty and the ability to resist temptation and to choose rightly. And we've talked about that before. The liberty is as we'll see here in a minute, no external constraints, no force from outside making him choose, and the ability internally he had that capacity to choose spiritual good. So he could fulfill God's law, he could do that which is pleasing, and he had the ability not to commit sin. Isaac, Isaac, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, good to have you back. What a surprise. The devil could not have forced him to break his covenant unless Adam had given his consent. He consented. The woman was deceived, and some have argued that Adam himself was deceived, but the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible said that he ate, and it, makes, it seems to make a distinction. Paul makes a distinction between Adam and Eve when he says the woman was deceived. And it seems to me that Adam walked into this deliberately with eyes wide open. It is called forbidden fruit because it was prohibited by God under the most severe penalty, death. You shall surely die. And of course, I think of there he meant not only physical death, but he meant spiritual death and ultimately eternal death. That was the penalty. Mary Alice? Yes. I think so. I mean, Genesis doesn't give us everything, and there was this mingling of general revelation and special revelation that we see, you know, uh, God declared his glory in the heavens and on earth through the, the creation that he made. He also gave special revelation about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I'm, I'm convinced that he gave more. There was perfect communion between them. 
Some have argued that there was death among the animal kingdom before the fall. So that's how Adam would know, okay, I see what death looks like. I'm not convinced. I mean, I don't know about you, but if my dog dies, I'm grieved. Well, there's no grief in paradise, right? So I don't think there was tangible examples of death, but I do think God communicated to him what that means. So it was forbidden. It was a severe penalty. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Dying, you shall die. They were informed that violating the covenant would plunge them into eternal misery. Any other questions on this beginning part? Okay. Now the question is, why would God single out that one tree as forbidden? Of any tree in the garden you can eat, but this one you cannot eat. And there's no indication in scripture that there was anything distinctive about that tree. In other words, that it looked different or that it had some special properties. It's just the fact that God prohibited it. And in so doing, he asserted his absolute sovereignty. He is the Lord. Adam was the king of creation, but he was a vassal king under the suzerainty of God, Yahweh. And this reminded him of that, that he depended upon the Lord completely. He asserted his sovereignty in doing this, and he intended to test their obedience. The Lord tests the righteous. He does so now. He did so then. He tests. Remember Abraham. Sacrifice your son, your only son. The one to whom your promise was given, through whom the promise was to be fulfilled. And he tested Abraham, tested his faith. The thing is, God sees us as we really are. He can see in us. He can see through us. He knows everything about us. He knows what we think and say and do even before we do it. So why would he test us? And the the point is that he tests the righteous so that we can know ourselves. So that he can build our character. And so that he could advance his glory. So this probation, we've talked about probation before, and if that concept is foreign to you, raise your hand. We can talk about it again. I don't mind. But the probation tested Adam and Eve, and it taught them what they could never have known without it. Now, this gets back into the height of death, obedience, disobedience, judgment, the judicial function of casting out the unholy intruder from the sanctuary of Eden. They were completely dependent upon God, whose wisdom, power, and grace sustains all of us. So they could not have known this experientially, at least in this way, without the test. Thomas Guthrie has an interesting quote. He says, The fire that burns the oak into ashes, marble into dust, iron into rust, has no power to destroy or even injure a metal that shines but the brighter for the glowing flame. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, when God tests the righteous, it doesn't destroy them, it refines them. 
I think the whole book of Job is a commentary on this. Satan slandered Job and said that God's grace is insufficient. He's just in it for the benefits. And of course, he tested him. He allowed the devil to strip him of everything, even his own health, and God's grace was sufficient. The metal wasn't destroyed. It just glowed uh, brighter in the life of Job. So we find that God prohibited them from this tree, and they were guilty and corrupt before actually partaking of the forbidden fruit. What do I mean by that? Well, they listened to the devil. They should have cast him out immediately. They considered God a liar internally before they partook of the fruit, and they harbored a sinful desire in their souls. Uh, You remember Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. If you're angry, if you lust, if you do these things, you've already sinned. You've broken the commandments. And of course, Adam and Eve, they harbored this sinful desire before even partaking of the fruit. So they were guilty. The The actual act of eating, I think, is identified as the first sin because it was the first sin that was fully grown. This is what James talks about. Then desire... When it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So there was this sinfulness, this sinful desire within, and it gave birth to the sin of partaking of the forbidden fruit. Any questions at this point? Okay? So Adam's sin... Extremely heinous because of several aggravations. And if you were to look at the larger catechism, there's a question. um, Are all sins heinous? Are all sins equal and heinous in the sight of God? Something like that. And it says, no. All sins are not equally heinous in the sight of God. They are more heinous because of several aggravations. And it gives a whole list of things that aggravate the sin, making it more heinous. Let me give you some examples of Adam's. He was eminent for place and office. He was the public person. He represented all of us. He was our father. He was our head. And his example would be followed. Now, we're sinful not just because of his example. By original sin, we are guilty and corrupt. But his example would be followed. His sin was immediately against God, who expressly prohibited it. If you and I sin against God immediately, against an express command, that's more heinous than doing something that is not immediately against God or his attributes or his worship or his command. There is a level of heinousness that is deeper or greater because it's against him. It was against the express letter of the law and scandalized others. Sometimes we sin It's not specifically prohibited in Scripture. It's a sin. But we can't say that it's against the express letter of the law. Adam knew better. Don't eat of that tree. How much clearer can you be? It was not only conceived in the heart, but broke forth in action and scandalized others. So Jesus does say that if you harbor anger or lust or whatever in your heart, covetousness, That breaks God's command. It's sin, but it's not as heinous as if it breaks forth into action, if you actually take a life. 
I mean, you're going to be damned in hell either way. But you'll have a deeper place in hell if you actually take the life rather than just harboring anger. Adam sinned against the light of nature. Reason. Totally irrational. Why would you sin against a gracious, divine benefactor? Totally irrational. A conviction of conscience. His conscience told him this was wrong. Just like it tells you and I. And he sinned against his engagement to God. He was covenantally bound to obey God. Just like you and I are. Our baptism binds us covenantally to obey Yahweh. That's what happens when we are baptized. We swear allegiance to Christ. And then every time we partake of the supper, we renew that allegiance. Christ is my Lord and Savior. He died for me. I am duty-bound to obey him in all that he has revealed. So if we sin against the engagement to God, it's more heinous than other sins that are not. It was done, in Adam's case, deliberately, willfully, presumptuously, as if he knew better than Almighty God. And sometimes that describes me. You know, you know what I'm talking about. You know it's wrong, and you just go for it anyway. It's sinful, and it's more heinous than if you just kind of are caught off guard by a temptation. If you sin deliberately, willfully, presumptuously, it is far more heinous. It was committed in paradise. The circumstances of place and time add to the heinousness of a sin. This was in paradise where he had every advantage ever given to any human being. Just like if you sin on the Lord's Day in the sanctuary, it's far more heinous than if you sin on Tuesday at Acme. Not that this place is somehow holy ground, but when God is present, it is holy ground. Every Sunday morning, once that call to worship goes forth, that's holy ground. It's holy space because God is present in a very special covenantal way. I don't believe it's holy because it's a church, but just because of his presence. Jim? Yeah, I think you're, there's a lot of truth in that. I think you're right. That's why many people would say that pride was the first sin. It was with the devil, of course. And they would say the same thing about Adam and Eve because of the reason that you cited. There is that desire. But, of course, the devil was playing upon various desires within Eve, you know, um, her appetite, her curiosity, her ambition, these kinds of things. And Adam, I'm sure, shared the same desires. It's just, it's just hard to know, hard to understand how a holy, righteous, upright being could even allow those sinful desires to enter in. And that's the, that's the rub. And you say, well, it's because Satan tempted him. Okay, well, let's move back one. How can Lucifer, the highest of all holy angels, how could he allow pride to enter in. Well, we've, we've looked at that. <clears throat> it's a mystery. 
So Adam and Eve were guilty of ingratitude, pride, ambition, carelessness, and murder. They murdered themselves and they murdered the rest of the human race. The first murderers. Well, the devil is the first murderer, but first human murderers. And if unfallen man, as Adam was, fell as a result of temptation, how easy a prey is fallen man for the devil. Each one of us, how easy is it? Thank God that our salvation depends not on us, you know? If we are not kept by the power of God unto salvation, there is no hope of anybody being saved. But the gospel is that he does keep us. He will not let us go. As a faithful father, he will chastise us when necessary. He will help us repent of sin and hold on and latch on to Christ. And thank God he will. But if it was left up, up to us, we wouldn't be saved. There'd be no hope. So we should strive to guard against the small beginnings of temptation and resist it at the very start. You've heard the, the illustration, I think, where it's far easier to kill the snake in the egg than it is as a full-grown serpent. And so we have to guard against those small beginnings. I don't know how Adam felt, but there was a small beginning. So, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Just the tongue, just the word, the careless word. Every careless word. That is a sobering statement from our Lord. Every careless word will be judged. Thank God that he has covered it with his blood. Any questions on, on the heinousness of sin? Okay. Okay, so we move on to question 16. We've talked about the sin, the forbidden fruit. Now, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? Well, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind. Is this the right thing? Did I put the larger in there? Okay. All mankind descending from him by ordinary generations sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. And you can see there in those words that he's, the question is talking about both original sin that's inherited and the sin that is imputed. Adam was the covenant head of the human race, a public and representative person. Just like our president is a public person. He represents the United States wherever he goes. So when he speaks, it's basically like the United States is speaking, that kind of thing. Adam represented us. So while Adam stood, we stood. When Adam fell, we fell. And he represented us. The case was different with the angels who shared the angelic nature. They were all angels, but they did not have a covenant relationship. They weren't one whole. They were judged individually. So if they sinned, they fell individually, not as a race. <clears throat> That's a good thing for us, that we fell as a race, because then we can be redeemed as a race of elect people. So with, that, with mankind, Adam was the common father and the representative head. Because he was our federal head, his guilt, his legal liability, 
was imputed. I think that's a very important concept in Scripture. Romans 5 is probably the classic text uh, contrasting the first Adam and the second Adam and how all mankind fell in the first Adam and how all the elect are redeemed by the second Adam. But the idea there is this guilt is imputed. You are conceived as a guilty person. We get the corruption. Yeah, it kind of comes through the, the loins, the organic nature. We are guilty. So even before you take your first breath, you're liable to the penalty because of your guilt in Adam. Because he was our common father, his corruption was passed down to each one of us. So we are guilty, corrupt, we have no righteousness. Everybody who descends from Adam by ordinary generation were in him and represented by him. We find this in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, erased, passed. At one point in the past, we all sinned. How can he say that? I wasn't even born. When Adam sinned, we sinned. Now, it doesn't say because all are sinning. We'd get that. It's sinned. So in Adam, we sinned as if we ourselves were there. Any questions on the public person or this question? Okay. Oh, Jonathan? Is the corollary imputation of Christ, uh, would we state that quite as strongly to say that uh, in Adam we sinned, in Christ we obeyed? Absolutely. Very good point. An excellent observation. <clears throat> as a matter of fact, We always think about the cross, his passive obedience, paying the price, the penalty, right? Atoning for our sins. But his active obedience, his righteousness in fulfilling the law is equally necessary. Without his fulfilling the law, all that we would have is we're back to square one with Adam. If all we have is the forgiveness of sins, we don't have eternal life. It's the righteousness of Christ that God imputes to us, that gives us the right, the privilege, the authority to have eternal life. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. We need some cash. We got lots of cash in his righteousness. Yeah. It's funny because uh, Jay, I always say Gresham. I've been told recently that it's Gresham. I don't know. J. Gresham Machen, he was a professor at Westminster, and he and uh, I think it was um, I, I think it was John Murray, the other professor. They were debating back and forth, and Gresham Machen said, "Oh, well, his passive obedience, his death on the cross, is so imp- that's what's necessary." And Murray was arguing, "No, it's not just the passive; it's the active obedience that we need." Machen wasn't convinced, so he goes on this trip. To South Dakota, I think, is where he died. He was on a train. It was in the winter. He gets to South Dakota. He has a speaking engagement. He contracts pneumonia. He's on his deathbed. And the final communication that he sent was a, what did they have back then? Not, not text. What was it? Telegram. Thank you. Yeah. It was a telegram. And uh, he wrote it to John Murray, his friend. Uh, so thankful 
for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. He had been convinced. And on his deathbed, he embraced it. Now, that doesn't mean he wasn't a Christian before, but he just understood the importance of it, you know. So, yeah, absolutely, the the act of righteousness of Christ. That's imputed to us. And all of our sin, all of it, the whole elect, from the beginning of time to the end, was imputed to Christ. He bore our sins on the tree. You think about the weight of that. That's incredible. No wonder he cried out in dereliction upon the cross. Melissa? Right. And that keeps us from the, the weight of not trying to keep the law and keep it out of gratitude instead of I have to be good enough. That's right. Every single day can wake up knowing he did that already. I don't have to try to be good enough. I can just try to obey because he's my father. That's right. That's it's very good. That's exactly right. You don't want to get on that treadmill of trying to obey the law every day and being good enough. <clears throat> But we do try to please him, and we're sorrowful when in anything he is displeased. But that doesn't mean we lose our salvation. It's secure. You're right. It's a wonderful doctrine. Um, The distance between God and man is infinitely great, and our sinfulness makes it even greater. I don't know how you can make infinite greater, but it sounds good. And so God voluntarily condescended into entering into covenant with man. We've talked about this. And if Adam had stood the test, we all would have stood with him. Since Adam failed, we all failed by and in him. Why was all mankind represented by Adam when none of us had any choice in the matter? I've heard this before. I wasn't there. (laughs) It's not fair. I didn't get to choose. Well, it was fitting and it was proper that Adam should represent us because he is the father of us all. That's how God made the human race. You had no choice in your father. But your father represented the family. Well, ill, either way, he still represented the family. And it was fitting and it was proper in God's wisdom and providence that Adam would be our representative. And God chose him and God made a better choice than any of us could ever make. He's a God of infinite wisdom. How can we question his choice? And of course, getting back to the whole idea of imputation and Christ. Well, God chose Christ as the second Adam. And what a wise choice that was. Um, So, understanding these truths is very important because our, our very nature is sinful. It's humbling. And this is what provides the backdrop for preaching the gospel. You have to know your need to want to apply the remedy. If you don't think you're sick, well, then you don't care about Christ. Jesus came to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance, right? The Pharisees didn't realize they were dead. They might have thought they were a little bit sick. So this is the backdrop for preaching the gospel. You need a Savior. And we pray that God would open your eyes so that you can see your need. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And he goes on to describe, you know, throats as open graves and things like that. We have to recognize our need for a savior. Most people would be ashamed of being lowborn. If you're born in a, a very low condition, like Jesus being born to very poor people, obscure, um, plagued with the uh, tarnish of uh, illegitimate birth, disreputably associated with notorious criminals. If you have a, a family member who's in jail for some reason, you know, that, they'd be ashamed of that. That's something, well, maybe not in our day, but I mean, it, there was a point in time when you'd be ashamed of it. People don't like to be told that the human race from which they spring is a depraved one. You are a depraved human being. You are guilty, corrupt, and unrighteous. You have no standing in the presence of a holy God. They don't like to be told that. None of us like to be told that. But it's vitally important because, again, that shows our need. If we don't know the disease, we're not going to seek the remedy. The moral law is useful in awakening the conscience to flee from wrath to come and to find refuge in Christ. So that's why preaching the law at times is so helpful and so necessary. Especially in our day. There was a time in our country, again, where there was some biblical understanding, and at least they knew the commandments. If they broke one, they knew it. In our day, there is such a lack of biblical understanding and knowledge that People can't even tell you the commandments. I mean, there may be many of us who can't list them in order, but you know these things are wrong. And I know the work of the law is written on our hearts, and I know the conscience convicts us. I get that. But sometimes there are all kinds of implications and connections that people don't understand. That's wrong. They don't know it. So preaching the law tells us, okay, you need to understand that you're guilty for this particular thing, and you need to have your conscience informed and awakened, and you need to flee. Flee to Christ. Any questions on anything here? Okay. Um, this gets again back to Jonathan's point. The first Adam represented all mankind in the covenant of works. The second Adam represented all the elect in the covenant of grace. Thus it is written, Paul makes this contrast, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So there the Bible explicitly describes Jesus as the last or the second Adam. And there is this, this parallel, this, this contrast between the two. The first Adam was a type of the promised Christ who was then to come. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Well, how did Adam typify Christ? Well, as the public person. He's the head of the human race. Jesus is the head of all the elect. You can think, I remember Sinclair Ferguson talking about two gigantic human beings, each of them having a belt. And from that belt hung each of their um, people. So Adam has this belt, and he's got the whole human race hanging on him. So wherever he goes, they go. 
Jesus has this big belt, and hanging on him are all the elect. Where he goes, they go, like you were saying. So the type is the fact that the first Adam was a representative, the second Adam is a representative, and you're either one or the other. There's no other. You can ignore Christ if you want. (laughs) You can reject the gospel if you want, but you're on Adam's belt. And if you trust in Christ, you are on Christ's belt. And no one can take you away from it. That's a great thing. So it consists in the fact that each of them was a representative. The difference between them is incredibly and immeasurably great. Indeed, infinitely great. The first Adam is of the earth, a mere man. Whereas the second Adam was from heaven, the God-man. The human nature was taken into personal union with the divine person. Um, That's a mystery. It's an incredible miracle. The incarnation. The first Adam at his best was a changeable creature. The second Adam is the immutable God. Vastly different. Related, a parallel, but there's an infinite distance. Therefore, all mankind fell in Adam's first transgression and death spread to all men because all sinned. We were in the first Adam virtually as a natural root and representatively as a covenant head. Some of this is redundant, but you get the point. Any questions on the first and second Adam, that contrast or the parallel? John? Um, often, often in culture today, is a you deserve it um, mentality. Um, it really is trying to hedge off despair. It's really hedging off despair of, of not believing in anything beyond when I, when I first confronted really with Romans 9, the, the um, he is the potter, you are the clay. And, and wrestling with that, it is, it feels offensive, it is, it is breaking the pride of saying, we are the creature. He is God, he can do whatever he wants. And, and just stomaching that is, is uh, uh, something that's really, really hard but by the grace of God. Right. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, that innate pride that is in each one of us, against which we all struggle, is still there even after the <laughs> conversion, right? The forgiveness of our sins, we still struggle with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, God is the potter and we are simply the clay. He has a right to do whatever he wants. We belong to him. He's the creator. I always, that passage where Jesus sends the demons into the pigs... There's a hundred pigs, I think, and they run off the cliff into the water. And I thought, wow, that's kind of wasteful. What are you doing, Lord? These poor guys are out there trying to shepherd and you're destroying their pigs. Well, then I realized how many bulls, lambs, goats were sacrificed. I mean, literally millions. And God can do whatever he wants with his creatures. Jesus can do whatever he wants with that pack of pigs, herd of pigs, sorry. He is the potter. We're the clay. Thank God he's a good potter and that the potter chose us and that in Christ he's given us the privilege to become heirs of eternal life. There's nothing like that. I mean, it's all, it is almost too good to be true. It's absolutely amazing, this good news. Adam represented those who descended by ordinary generation and by that it simply means man and wife. 
Not Jesus. He descended from Adam by extraordinary revelation. No man, simply wife. Well, not even a wife. Well, I guess at that point she was betrothed. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So it did not come in an ordinary way. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So you remember the description, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High overshadowed her. It was this miracle of the immaculate conception. And it is a mystery. That is an amazing thing. The second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God, took upon him a reasonable soul, a true body, full human nature. And he'll be like that forever. That'll never change. That's an incredible thought, that he who was from eternity and to eternity in time took a human nature, and that'll never change. The human nature of Christ was not stained or tainted with original sin because it was extraordinary generation. Ah, here it is. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Because it's conceived by the Holy Spirit, he's holy. There's no taint of original sin. And that is essential for our salvation. Nobody else is exempt from original sin because everybody else descends by ordinary generation. All mankind, except Jesus, is represented by Adam as the covenant head and we fell with and in him. That's why the virgin birth is absolutely necessary. And of course, this teaches us something about the greatness of our salvation. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, Adam, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous, Jesus. And I think obedience there is comprehensive. His life and his death. All believers who have borne the image of the earthy will also bear the image of the heavenly. You'll remember that contrast in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is just comparing the first and second Adams. First Adam is earthy from the earth. Second Adam is heavenly from heaven. We'll bear the image of the heavenly. When, you see, when they saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain, that didn't just declare his glory. That gave us a glimpse of what's going to happen to us. We'll share in his glory. That's a glorified body. Absolutely incredible. Finally, the second Adam, as we said, he is the last Adam. The parallel between the Adams, I think, is most pronounced in Christ's encounters with the devil. We said that Adam had a probationary testing in the garden when the devil was allowed to come in and tempt him. And therefore, we find Jesus in the Gospels being driven out right after his baptism. He's formally identified with his people. He's driven into the wilderness. That's what it says. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And in that wilderness, 40 days to represent 40 years, the true Israel, Jesus, the true Israel, the second Adam, is being tempted by the devil. And he won this decisive victory which anticipated the cross. Decisively, he defeated the devil in the wilderness. Finally and ultimately, he defeated him at the cross. There was no question that he would win. 
By rebuking Satan and driving him away in the wilderness, he did what the first Adam failed to do, and it was a decisive victory anticipating his ultimate triumph through death. It is finished, he said. The Son of Man, as the second Adam, came from heaven to undergo a probation and a covenant of works. What? You're saying, what? Our salvation is earned. Not by you and me, by him. He had to pass a covenant of works to secure for us the right to eternal life. So our salvation is earned by the second Adam. A covenant that he made with his father before he left heaven, he fulfilled that, and it's the reason why he came to earth. All those passages which talk about Jesus being sent on a mission. Well, that assumes a plan, a previous plan. I came to fulfill the Father's will. Uh, I came to destroy the works of the devil, so on and so forth. It assumes a plan, a covenant that had been made before he came from heaven, and it was between the Father and the Son. And the covenantal commitments made in eternity had to be fulfilled on earth in historical time. So what they agreed to in eternity, he fulfilled in time as a human being, as our head. He would gain the reward of the covenantal kingdom. Remember in Philippians 2, it's talking about how he emptied himself and he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross, and then that all-important conjunction, therefore, God highly exalted him. It's a purpose clause. He fulfilled the covenantal commitments, and as a result, God rewarded him with a name that is above every name, And with the salvation of the elect, the nations are his. He would ratify the covenant of grace by suffering the bruising of his heel and dying on the cross. Every covenant in the Old Testament, if you look at it literally, it is said those covenants are cut. Whenever our translation says God made a covenant, literally God cut a covenant. Genesis 15. Abraham cuts the animals in half, lays them on either side. He falls asleep and God walks through them. In essence saying, if this covenant is broken, may this happen to me. And the covenant was broken because Adam was a sinner. I mean, Abraham was a sinner. So God suffered the curse that was pictured by those slain animals. And every other covenant that's made is cut. So the covenant of grace was established by the cutting of the Son of God. His circumcision, I think it's in Colossians 2. His public, open, ultimate circumcision being cut off. That happened at the cross. Yes, he was circumcised as an infant. But he was circumcised on that cross for all of us. That's the ultimate act of being cut off. And thus he brought salvation to all believers. He obtained for us the kingdom and the crown of glory. We'll be crowned not because of what we did, but we'll be crowned because of what he did. And the eschatological goal reached by Christ had already been envisaged as the reward for an obedient Adam. If Adam had been obedient, this is what we would have inherited. But he wasn't, so the second Adam had to come. It is a covenant of grace insofar as God gives the kingdom to those who forfeited their right to it. We have no right to this kingdom. It's a gift. 
It's a free gift. Now the eternal blessing must come by way of redemption as promised in the curse, Genesis 3.15. So Jesus obtained it for us. What a remarkable thing. Any final questions? Comments? Okay. Oh, Anastasia. Was Adam redeemed? Yes. Yes, absolutely. He called his wife Eve after the fall. Mother of all living. Spiritually living. Eternally living. And then God sacrifices the animals and clothes them in anticipation of that imputed righteousness, the, clothe, the, the garment of Christ's righteousness with which all believers are clothed. So yes. And Eve is called the mother of all living, and by that I think he means not just physical, spiritual, and eternal. And that's the hope. Yes. Julia. Right. Yeah, I mean, I I get what you're saying. I, I I think it's a it's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about that before, but yeah, I mean, where would Abel have learned? By God's grace, he was saved. I, I'm not sure that would prove that Adam and Eve were saved, but, but you're right. That, that's, a great, that's a great thought. Well, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the second Adam. And we recognize that we are undeserving of your mercy and grace. We're unworthy of your love. Each and every day we struggle with our own sinfulness. But we're grateful that Jesus has paid the price and that he has fulfilled the law, and that our salvation is secure. Please prepare us now for worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.